welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Jacob Graves. On today's show, we've got a review of Denis Villeneuve's geopolitical sci-fi film, starring Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner, Arrival. Followed by a recap of Week 11 of the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League. Then, we'll help you fill out your upcoming holiday wish list with the surprisingly burdensome special features topic, our favorite Criterion Collection films. And finally, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... So Jake, a bit of uh, sad and joyous news at the same time. Uh, As we are speaking right now, the Criterion Collection has left Hulu. No. Yeah, and has all migrated over to Filmstruck, the new service, which is now out. It is launched. Um, and I actually discovered that since I did some beta testing for it, they gave me basically two months free. They, they gave me a free membership up until the end of the year. So I've been uh, playing around with it a little bit, kind of diving in, seeing what's good, seeing what's bad. Um, and I got to say, it's a little bit of a mixed bag right now. Um, the collection itself, the catalog itself is pretty good. The, it's really nice to see actual like special features from the criterion releases, um, available for a lot of the films. So, so it has all, like all these special features that you get on the criterion it, disc. It doesn't seem to have all of them. And I had read somewhere before it, you know, came out that there were going to also be, like you could get uh, commentary tracks and that sort of thing as well. I haven't seen any, any of that, uh, but there are. So they have custom intros for a lot of the films, both Criterion and uh, Filmstruck or Turner Classic Movies. Um, and then they have they do have a lot of, you know, the little featurettes or interviews or whatever um, for, for a lot of these films as well, which is, which is really nice. Um, something else that's nice that I, I found is they're actually doing a couple of, so you remember when we, uh, had Hunter on a few episodes back to discuss, uh, Shin Godzilla, he mentioned like what they need is they need, they need some sort of original content. Mm-hmm. Well, they're, they're doing that. They're actually, uh, lo and behold, Tony Joe, the, the guy who does the every frame of painting, video essays he's done two video essays oh wow that yeah that kind of coincide with uh collections like little little curated collections uh which is pretty cool and then there's also a it seems to be something that's hopefully going to be ongoing um a collection called adventures and movie going with bill Hader. Huh, huh and so there's a like i think it's about 18 minute little featurette where he's talking with, I believe, the president of Criterion, and the president of Criterion is sort of uh, interviewing him, asking him different questions, and um, so he, you know, talks about some of his favorite films and and how he kind of got into loving film, that sort of thing. That's really good. And then he's also curated, you know, films on uh, the Criterion channel that he loves, and he's done little little intros or little little pieces for each of them as well. So, so you know what I I think would be neat. Is if uh, Criterion just um, or Filmstruck had some original content uh, with Bill Hader? Uh, I'm thinking it could be called Criterion Now. It could be a lot like Documentary Now, except he <laughs> just focuses on Criterion films. <laughs> they actually um, they actually kind of discuss that a little bit in in the interview um, about how you know obviously with with stuff like Documentary Now, he's very he's very into um, into you know a lot of these. Uh, 
a more you know world cinema or that that sort of thing they they get into that i would i'd love to see something like that i i wonder i mean obviously that would take a lot more production value than just a sit down interview and i'm i'm perfectly fine with um with these for now so like his his first run of of films and it it sounds like he he'll add to it periodically um as things go on maybe as things get added but right now he's got a woman under the influence the john cassavetes film blood simple the very first coen brothers film down by law jim jarmusch ikaru um the of course kurosawa film uh kes father panchali uh the american friend which is one that i i don't honestly know anything about it. i believe it's a vim vendors film huh. um the brood which is early cronenberg uh the vanishing an amazing little uh yeah kind of thriller horror film uh from from the i believe late 80s and then the virgin spring the uh bergman movie wait is it vanishing or the vanishing the vanishing oh okay uh, i haven't Sisperu seen that one. or whatever so I, I can't uh, I can't wait till the random guy like hops on his friend's filmstruck su- subscription. He's like, man, I thought I liked that Bill Hader, but none of these movies were funny. Man, you watch Superbad. That's a good movie. Uh, I've watched four and a half hours of Woman Under the Influence. I didn't laugh but twice. <laughs> and one of them was when he gave that kid beer. Uh, <laughs> uh, see when when you started doing that accent my first thought was no no no, no. it's it's gonna be that guy that we met in haskell who uh wanted to talk to us about gummo and he's gonna love it hey guy guy in haskell who worked outside of i believe it was the butcher shop the butcher who, shop i think he worked inside the butcher shop as well yeah if you're listening for sure you can come on the podcast and we will <laughs> yes, we will review please. gummo with you contact us it is it is a movie that i don't think i've ever seen all the way through from start to finish like i think i've seen all of it you know that that sort of like it'd play on ifc or whatever and i would catch it but it's it's hard to say what we, I, I definitely have not put it on and just gone straight through i, I have i haven't it's one of those movies where it's just like oh god i'm not trying that and then you show up to the <laughs> smallest town in oklahoma and a random giant butcher guy comes out and he's like you boys ever seen gumbo Wearing wearing uh, wraparound Oakleys and overalls, it was great. Yeah, I, was, I, I didn't mean wonderful. to use the voice to make him sound that sinister because he was the <laughs> he was an extremely nice guy, and he seemed like oh yeah, he seemed like he was just happy to have met someone who had heard of the film. Yeah, no, that that's exactly what it what it seemed like. Um, so back back to Filmstruck, there is one thing that still kind of bugs me about it, and that is the ease of use of it. I guess um, so. As I said before, it was released. It's sort of they're rolling out different devices and everything. And it's been really difficult to watch stuff. Um, I have I've tried a few things I've watched just on my computer. I've also Chromecasted a tab from my computer to my TV. Man, Chromecasting a tab is always the last resort of anything. And it never goes great. Well, and, and the bigger problem is that the controls are really clunky. Like it doesn't do it does sort of like a shadow box player. Mm-hmm. And so if you click outside of it, it stops playing. And it's just it's not convenient. I watched I watched all of uh, the the Altman film, the player that way. How was the player? I, I liked it. It's certainly dated. I mean, it feels like it was made in exactly the time that it was because it's a satire of Hollywood. So it's a satire of Hollywood at that time. So a lot of, you know, 
references to Julia Roberts and uh, Jeff Goldblum and Matthew yeah. Broderick shows up and Burt Reynolds. I, I, is- I, re- I read the cover at Barnes and Noble the other day, uh, uh-huh. and I was like, "This is a star-studded cast." Dot 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 for 1993. Uh, exactly. That that's exactly what it is. Yeah. But so here's here's the thing that that kind of bugs me. So right now it's only you know like on handheld devices, be it your phone or a tablet, computers, and Amazon Fire. Um, it's coming to Apple TV. Find find Filmstruck everywhere you hate to watch movies today. Phones, computers. Well, it, it, it's coming to Apple TV, but it's only coming to the fourth gen. Apple TV, so the what? newest Apple TV. So if you have an older one, and this is this is probably an Apple problem because you know they didn't have the open SDK. Yeah, and I, my my gut is since they're going to have a lot of extra special like special features, alternate audio tracks, stuff like that. I, I bet that it's a technology problem. Well, yeah, probably, probably so, but it's a technology problem because it's you know like I mean I know my Roku, both of my Rokus would handle. The, the mm-hmm. stuff that and and Roku and Chromecast are supposed to be coming early 2017 is what they have listed. Um, that's, you know, once once my subscription runs out, if those aren't available, I'm probably not going to no, pick I, up I have, and I have to subscribe. Buy it. it has to be available on something that I can watch movies on. And by something, yeah. I mean something that connects easily to my 50 inch TV. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so it's um it's I, I guess I'll say it's a great service, but a great service that has growing pains, I think, right now. And. Hopefully it it grows out of them and hopefully it, uh, you know, in in a few months, it's going to be exactly the service that we've all dreamed about for as long as we have. So, but I mean, we should have a moment of silence for Hulu and Criterion's uh, connection because there there were two things that I really spent time on with that. Number two, I watched, you know, a few good Criterion films that way that I wouldn't have watched. And number one, I scrolled through so much menu. I saw so many films that I decided that I wasn't ready to watch that day. Like everything by Fellini and everything but the big city by Sanjit Ray. Like every Oh, you you did watch the big city? I did. I liked it. Yeah. Oh man. You need to watch the music room as well. Music room is fantastic. I'll I'll have to do that because I I liked the big city. It it was not what I expected, but I definitely liked it. And, and I'll give them, I'll give filmstruck and Criterion channel kudos for this. It is laid out a little better than, Hulu, like Hulu, you couldn't click on a director's name mm-hmm. and see everything the director did. Um, right now, they do have some problems. Like I found that, um, I found that uh, Louis Bunuel and uh, Pedro Almodovar. So basically, anyone who has little squigglies in their name, um, apparently those links are broken right now. That's mm. a you know, I'm sure a back end technical problem. Um, but still, that's it's better than what uh, the navigation was for Hulu, and stuff is curated into little little section so you could you could say okay here's all the vim vendor movies maybe i this is hypothetical um here's all the vim vendor movies um here's here's where you can start here's intros that you can see so it's it makes it a little more accessible for those movies that you otherwise may have just been scrolling through and just been like nope not today yeah so most of them <laughs> you, you gotta if you're gonna watch 14 Zatoichi or however it's said uh samurai films you, you gotta be in the right mood all right well midnight wars those are my initial thoughts on filmstruck if you are subscribed and uh or trying out your i should say if you go to filmstruck.com you can get a 14 day free trial so two weeks um to to check it out if you do so uh email us at hello war starts midnight.com tell us what you like about it tell us what you're watching and also uh, tell us what you hate and if you use promo code midnight warrior you'll receive nothing special because we have no affiliation with filmstruck that is correct stay tuned for our review of denis villeneuve's newest film arrival Arrival.
more objects have landed around the world. This is one of 12. I'm never going to be able to speak their words. You got two days. Figure something out. I am a human. It's their language. We need to make sure that they understand the difference between a weapon and a tool. Language is messy, and sometimes one can be both. Are you dreaming in their language? It's possible they're prodding us to fight among ourselves. This is just a way to force us to work together for once. It's more complicated than that. How is it more complicated? Russia just executed one of their own to keep their secret. Got 21 hours before they start global war. So how do we clarify their intentions? I go back in. Why does this feel worse? We've seen a run of indie horror movies lately that all seem to follow a similar trajectory. They receive massive, often near-unanimous praise from critics, only to be struck down as overrated, overhyped, or simply not scary by audiences. Think The Following, The Invitation, or The Witch. These films explore the kind of cerebral subject matter that critics often love to devour, but they also tend to skip out on the more conventional genre trappings that horror fans have come to expect. I suspect Denis Villeneuve's latest film, Arrival, may receive similar backlash from some sci-fi fans. On the surface, the film, which stars Amy Adams, Jeremy Renner, and Forrest Whitaker, asks a few simple questions. Have the dozen almond-shaped spacecrafts that descended upon various nations of Earth come to create war or peace? And will the nations work together to share their discoveries as each attempts to find the key to communicating with the seven-legged heptapod creatures aboard the craft? But Villeneuve and screenwriter Eric Heiser appear to be much more interested in crafting an emotional resonance than big sci-fi thrills. The focus of the story is surprisingly small, considering the broad interstellar backdrop. And the ultimate conclusion is light years away from what we've come to expect when fleets of extraterrestrials descend upon our planet. So Jake, I'm curious. How'd Villeneuve and Heiser do? Did you find Arrival to be emotionally rewarding? Or were you left lamenting the fact that the film didn't even come close to meeting Roland Emmerich's explosion quota? And furthermore, if you were given the responsibility of naming a pair of alien squid monsters, which historic duo would you pick? Hollenotes. 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 That's yeah. That's one, a really one of them good... had the big mustache. I feel like <laughs> Hollenotes. It's not even a question. Next. That would that would that would have made it far easier to uh, tell them apart. I mean, they could have. <laughs> Because as far as I was aware, it was just like the one on the left is Abbott, the one on the right is Costello. They could have been switching it up every time. Yeah, and I, I thought they were like... Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Darth Vader, Father, Leia, and Luke. Harry Lamb is alive and well. Tiny Darko turned out to be a dream. Or did it? Or didn't it? I don't know. they were like where's Abbott and then she goes and suddenly she can you know converse with them because learning to read that language means you know how to write with space ink and <laughs> she was like where's Abbott and he was like Abbott's in the dying process <laughs> like they know their names you wow okay spoilers for uh <laughs> arrival um right now Sorry, guys. Oops, I gave away. I gave away one of the things that happened in the one movie, of the things that happened, which is yeah. a slow movie. So there's not a lot that's going on 
action wise. Right. And that, but that's why, that's why I'm asking, like, did you, because I think, I think this movie was definitely sold as one thing. And honestly, like, I think the trailer was not all that great. The trailer honestly sucked. The thing that made me interested in it was the fact that it was, uh, Villeneuve who, I mean, Sicario, I loved enemy. I loved, uh, prisoners. I didn't care too much for, but I mean, generally I, I do find, what he's working with fascinating. And so I was interested just in, you know, the cast and, and him and Bradford young, the, the DP being, being involved in this. So, so the premise hooked me. Uh, that's the first thing I'll say. I, I wasn't looking forward to it. I got in there. The premise hooked me, but I will confess one of my guilty pleasures is on long road trips. I, this isn't a joke. I listen to uh, linguistics audiobooks. Uh, I have, uh-huh. It's not my job, nothing related to anything I've studied. I just think it's like a, a an interest that I have. So I listen to those a lot. So really, I would have been equally happy if this were an hour and a half on why Portuguese doesn't sound like the rest of the Romance languages. <laughs> um, I would have been completely fine with that. And so I was hooked. I was good. And that's something that's talked about a lot is like how we communicate with aliens, either mm-hmm. from like, uh, you know, a philosophical sense um and from everything I've read, you would want to start with a mathematics type approach, which is why they brought, you know, why Jeremy Renner's character had something to do with the Right, film. the theoretical physicist. Yeah, because um, the idea being that math is all based off of logic and math would work in any culture. So you would start with like a math based communication to start mm-hmm. trying to exchange information. And I thought this, um, it was interesting how. She was more like this film was saying, like, it's not all cold logic and reasoning, um, which is what could bring you to all the violence and other things that um, the other countries were going through. You have to bring this heart to it and this sense, you know, of personality or not personality, humanity. And you take off your suit and kind of be vulnerable to each other. I I thought that was really interesting. I I thought it did a good job of of showing all that stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, I'll be honest. I was, you know, probably 45 minutes, maybe an hour into this movie. I was in a weird place where I was enjoying it. I was enjoying myself. Um, but I was also kind of sitting thinking, okay, where, where are we going with this? And what is, what is the ultimate point? Um, you know what I mean? Like it, it was a very, it was a very odd feeling. Cause it was like, it, it felt sort of like, you know, I guess watching maybe like a, like a, slower world cinema film, like a Tarkovsky film or something in that mm-hmm. it was, it, it was like, okay, we're just along for the ride, which is a very weird place to be when you're watching a movie where, you know, Forrest Whitaker's playing a Colonel and you've got Jeremy Renner and Amy Adams there as well. And it, and it's a big, you know, Hollywood sort of looking movie. Well, and, and if you want to talk about the start of the film, like it, it, it takes a while to get there, but it, it if you're talking about like all the things this film's trying to juggle, the first one, the first ball that it starts to juggle is her kid dies of cancer or some yeah. disease. We don't know what it is, and, but that ball gets thrown really high up in the air and does not come back down for about 40 minutes. But I, I really appreciated that sort of approach. I mean, it felt, it felt very, very Nolan brothers esque um, in, in many ways, the way that it's dealing with time and memory, um, the way it's, you know, dealing with, with emotion. Um, I love the fact that basically the daughter is introduced, um, from birth to death and it's three minutes. It's, it, it was really, I thought it was the best way they could have opened that film. And it was the sort of the question that was looming. I thought is like, how does this all relate? Was this just mm-hmm. to establish her character and say mm-hmm. that, but 
you know, it wasn't. Obviously, it came back around and and was almost the center of the film. Let me ask this. Did you think um, that that all took place before the events that occupy most of the film? I did the, think that. Okay. I, I did as well. Like I was, I was totally sold on, on that, um, for the majority. I mean, I, I think the, the kind of hook creeped up a little bit earlier than the like big sort of there's, there's that big montage crescendo, like, like he, here, we're going to throw all the feels that you reveal. I, I almost thought stuff got over explained because like, I think I got it really? way earlier. Yeah. I think I got it way earlier than maybe I was supposed to. And I, I had the whole thing kind of pieced together. Mm-hmm. Um, but were you let down by the the eventual explanation? I mean, it was exactly what I was expecting. So I was just like, yep, go through the motions, explain it. Uh, okay. Show it again. See, I, I totally, even though, even though I had kind of like arrived at that conclusion already, I totally bought into the release of kind of the crescendo of everything of, um, catching the audience up like it it felt like a a strong enough emotional beat that i was okay with it even if it was a little um i don't know obvious the the big question you know capital capital letters the big question in this film that i think it was trying to answer is something along the lines of is it it was about the value of life being lived and Mm -hmm. is it worth bringing someone into this world who's only going to die eventually. Um, it, it didn't expressly, uh, there was a lot of other things going on, but I thought that was like the emotional heart of the film. Definitely. And I thought it, I thought it did a good job of essentially getting to the point that uh, for all the good things that her daughter brought into the world and all she, she, she got to a place where she could see all time at once and realize that any time that her daughter exists is worth it. And uh, obviously, Jeremy Renner's character uh, felt differently, and that's why he left. Uh, but she still thought it was worthwhile, and she knew all those things were going to happen, and she she still she still did it. Right, and I think there there's a few things there in so she's essentially experiencing time in a slaughterhouse five sort of sense, where mm-hmm. time is now fluid, and so her. Um, ability to you, you, one could say that her ability to flow in and out of moments in time, um, would <laughs> may give you the perspective of like, oh, well, it's, it's certainly worth going through the tragedy because otherwise you wouldn't know the joy. Um, and, and so it, it implies that she made this decision like before the kid even happened, she knew it was going to happen. And so she made the decision, okay, I'm going to allow this to happen because it's worth the joy I'm going going to have. Whereas, you know, in Jeremy Renner's case, he's, he's going to only experience it in a linear fashion. Well, and so I do, I, I do wonder if there is a little bit of, you know, she will get, uh, a, you know, she, she can take a little more comfort in it because she can jump around. I, I think that Jeremy Renner's character had never, he obviously, wasn't familiar with the ancient philosopher Brooks who said, I could have missed the pain, but I'd have had to miss the dance. (laughs) Sir, Sir Garth Brooks. Yes. Yes. Um, No. And I don't know that she was jumping around in time or if at that point she experienced all time at once. Well, maybe. uh, Yeah. So it's maybe it's not quite Slaughterhouse Five. It's literally like everything is. Yeah. And you might you might be right. But it, it does have like the the movie has a weird melding of like in in my like i don't know trying to compartmentalize it 
I, I put it in this place of like, it's almost uh slaughterhouse five meets inside out. Uh, and with the, with the opening from up with the opening from up. Yeah. Um, I, I think, <laughs> I think that it was a really interesting, it's not a time travel movie and I'm aware it's not a time travel movie, but mm. depicting time in the way that it did was really unique. I haven't seen something mm-hmm. like that, or at least not, you know, recently or in a movie or something like that. But it it was a refreshing take because now we we get these really linear time travel things. It seems like that's our yeah. rules now on time travel as you go forward and then backwards and things are changed or, but, or very, very concerned with just the rules and nothing else. Right. And, and this was time perception, not time travel. Mm-hmm. And so it was very different. Um, there were still things I didn't didn't like, though, it to me. I get the um, linguistic uh, relativity, I think it's called, where uh-huh. um, the language that you know determines how you think, oh, yeah. which... In, well, but that's where it becomes a sci-fi movie at its, you know, at its yeah, course. <laughs> to, to, to me, well, that's that's an actual theory, mostly not disproved, but in the 20th century, it's not like... Uh, People don't believe it as or ascribe to it as much as they used to. It went the went the way of eugenics. Uh, no, it's not quite that bad. Uh, but in this movie, it, it seemed like all you had to do was learn a new language, and then you perceived all of time differently. Mm-hmm. It in a movie well, that felt like it set up rules really well about we're trying to communicate with aliens, and I was super bought into that. Uh-huh. I, I wanted to know how she would learn to communicate with someone who you had nothing in common with no nothing at all not even the same race not even the same planet um and i was so bought into that that when the promise of like here's how we learn to communicate got replaced with like i became a a being outside of our dimension through learning this language and i perceive all of time and reality differently uh was a little bit unexpected for me and maybe it's my own problem because of how much I'm interested in the subject matter. Yeah. And I, I could kind of see you being, you know, more on the technical, uh, the technical critic of, of how this stuff comes together. I, I approached it more from an emotional standpoint. And so I, I was able to get past that stuff. I mean, for me, it's really about, uh, the way language divides us. Like that's what the film is about. And so it's using this as a device to explore that. You know, it's this is the tool that is the or the weapon, if you will, that is um, used to to explore that. And so I it didn't really bother me. I do. Honestly, I I really love the way that um, throughout the film and not even, you know, I think I think it's beyond the that piece of it but throughout the entire film uh Villeneuve kind of keeps the audience at bay with with jargon throwing us directly into the story you know he doesn't he doesn't introduce characters a lot of times like I I still couldn't tell you what Michael Stuhlbarg his title is I could tell you sort of what he does um but I love I love that about it I you know and so it's it's one of those things I just I bought into it on that level and and so Dude, didn't, I, I don't even know most of the characters' names. I've called Jeremy Renner Jeremy Renner every time. I know she's Louise. Yeah, uh, Doctor Banks. Sure. But, and but I'm I'm fine with that. Like I mm-hmm. like it. It's sort of it's definitely he does the same thing in Sicario. I mean, I love the way that he just sort of expects the audience to get it and to understand. And it 
here I could, I can understand a criticism of it being lazy. I think it's very intentional though, in the way that he uses it. Um, and I think it works in tandem very well with this whole idea of language as a barrier. I don't know if this bothered you or not, but to me, so the, one of the themes, I guess, of the film is we need to come together, work together for peace, understand mm-hmm. each other, not be so quick to, you know, attack and all these other things. Yeah. And this, so this film one, suddenly became weirdly pressing it like in a way that it may have not been a week ago. Y- yes. But at, at the same time, so they had one of the devices they used in there, which I I thought was sort of dumb. I want to hear your perspective on it. It was like a talk radio Rush Limbaugh type was talking to these, uh, you know, he's on the radio and these soldiers are listening to it. Yeah. Well, no, I think, I think it was like a, it was more like an Alex Jones, like video blogger, uh, whatever new media news guy. Yeah. It was like, we got to show our force and knock these aliens out to sky or whatever it was. And so some uh, sailors, some soldiers went rogue and put like some C4 up to try to, to blow up the, uh, the egg or whatever you want to call it. Uh, it was, it was kind of cheesy with the countdown clock and the aliens saving them. Yeah. See, I, I thought, I thought the tension was really good. Um, cause I legitimately didn't know how it was going to play out. Um, and if you've seen Sicario, you know that like, he's not opposed to just taking hard left turns. Um, but, uh, I, I do agree. Like that felt like that was a little too quick to just like allow it to happen. I guess there was no, and, and this, this comes from not having the character development that, you know, I was just praising that, but this is a place where maybe you need a little more of that to buy into this event happening. Yeah, and the thing that I really didn't like about it, it it was a movie about, like, you need to understand everybody. We need to all come together and work together, everybody's Mm -hmm. people. And I thought it did a good job of saying, like, here's how Amy Adams or Louise is affected by the aliens landed. Here's how society is affected in that some people are rioting and some, you know, they showed a lot of different takes. But yet uh, the the right wing, I guess it was portrayed here as, like, these right wing nut jobs – uh, who I felt like the, the the director didn't establish like good motivation or anything uh-huh. for that. It felt like it was just playing on tropes of like, uh, the right wing guys, if aliens showed up, we'll probably want to blow them out the sky. I don't, that- I don't know if that's exactly it though. Um, just from a, like, I think it was broader than that. I think it was a global sort of thing. I, I think it was commenting on like, generally when something like this happens, pandemic sets in and human nature is, uh, get scared and get defensive. Um, outside of the film, like you were talking about, let's look at this, how this will play right now. Do you think this will hurt the film or hurt its box office that it has this little bit of spin on it? Will it cause some bad word of mouth in today's society? I don't know. I don't know if that's going to be the thing that keeps people at bay with this movie. I mean, and honestly, it has, I think it has like an 83% uh, audience on Rotten Tomatoes right now. So it doesn't, as far as that's concerned, you know, my, my earlier uh, comment about, this could be, you know, like the witch or, um, mm-hmm. or the invitation, that sort of thing. It doesn't seem to be getting that right now. I mean, it's only been out at this point when we're recording, it's only been out for the weekend. Um, so maybe, I mean, maybe there's a little bit of that. I think, I mean, even though it's a movie with Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner, um, I do think it's still flying a little bit under the radar as, as far as it's, you know, it, it's just like Sicario last year, 
I was so excited about it. And I like none of my friends, no one I talked to about it had even heard of it. I feel like I know a lot of people have heard of this and, and a lot of people have been asking me, what do you th- what did you think of Arrival? Uh-huh. And uh, not to spoil what I think of it, but I said, I think everybody else liked it more than me uh, because I liked I liked it. Uh, but I've everybody else I talked to has liked it more and people keep going. That's what all the other people I talked to said this actually this actually brings up something that so. Um, I, I do want to get a little bit into some of the more technical things we've, we've okay. spent a lot of time on, on story and, and all of that. Um, so Bradford Young, uh, shot this film, which is a, uh, a change for Villeneuve. Villeneuve has been working with Roger Deakins a lot lately. I uh, worked with him on prisoners, worked with him on Sicario, both gorgeous films. Um, he's working with him on the new Blade Runner movie. Um, Bradford Young, uh, another incredible young, director of photography and he's actually the type of dp that i will see a movie because he shoots it because up until this point i don't think i had seen a movie that he had shot that i enjoyed as much as i enjoyed it visually um and this is probably and i'm not i i'm I'm certainly not glowing on this movie it it has it has some things that I, I hope maybe we'll expand a little bit when I revisit it. I think it it could have that uh, kind of perspective shifting moment, sort of like something like the prestige does when you see it again. Um, but I don't know. We'll, we'll see. But I did really, really love um, the way this movie looked. And that was, I was a little apprehensive going in because I had seen the trailer. The trailer was, was garbage and it spent a lot of time in the alien spacecraft, which I think looks very sort of bland and conventional, but everything else I thought was beautiful. So did, did that work for you? Did, did the visual style? Yes. I, I, I thought it looked really good. I especially liked most, almost all the shots of like the, the big egg spacecraft things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those looked really good, really real. I liked, um, I guess, I don't know if it's set de- decoration art design or whatever of like, the military camp and going up to it and the lift that took like that was all the world was really it was realized really well and yeah. it was shot really well yeah I set liked, design it it had a very uh kind of et like the the latter half of et when sort of the uh all the the space guys show up you know with mm-hmm. I, maybe with the suits and with the just uh sort of pop up military um village um, I like that it had, I mean, it was visually just like the way that they, the light is all very low and soft and beautiful and really pushing. I mean, it's all very dark, but very intentionally. So, um, I thought that was a really nice, really nice touch to this. I, I did. There were two spots where I didn't like some of the decisions they made. Uh, when Jeremy Renner's character jumps off that lift for the first time and he kind of hits the ground weird. And uh-huh. they ask him if he's okay. His spaceship looked, or I mean, his uh, spacesuit, I'm calling it, but whatever that orange hazmat suit, suit. In, his hazmat suit looked like it had the wrong texture on it. Huh. Like okay. it was, it was CG and it looked like the way the light was coming off of it looked really weird. Uh-huh. And the second thing, the heptapods looked great in the little smoky Mm. Uh, yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. But when she went into it at the end and we saw the whole. Well, and also the vision before that. Yeah, I. 
I don't it was, know. It was a little rough. Yeah, they should have kept them behind the smoke or a little more obscured. I I think I agree with you there for sure. But and at the risk of sounding like Roman from Party Down uh, <laughs> and complaining about this not being hard as sci-fi, it, there was some weird stuff where it was like um, I could see it taking eighteen hours to repressurize their ship if their atmosphere is different, and so they talk all about that, and so they really clearly separate their atmosphere from the human atmosphere but suddenly amy adams is fine with like floating around in it yeah that was i I don't know man i can't yeah and that and that's the like i can't you know i have no good excuse for it it's just like i felt like at that point you know from on to to go to a resource that i go to a lot uh to go to walter merch it was working for me emotionally and so i didn't question continuity yeah, I, I guess because it is a sci-fi film, and maybe it's because yeah. I was sold on it being a sci-fi film or that I like sci-fi, um, I had more questions that I wanted answered than they... I had more technical questions that I wanted answered than they answered, and mm-hmm. story-wise, they answered every single question except what will happen in 3,000 years, and there was no mystery left for me. And there yeah. was there's not much... I thought, because I thought everything felt answered... And resolved, and I went home and was like, all right, don't need to think about that anymore. <laughs> I, I just, it didn't have that lasting sort of mystery about it that I would have liked. See, it, it did for me, but it hasn't, it also hasn't lingered quite as much as I would have expected, as, as I expected when I like walked out. Like, I've been thinking about it, but it hasn't been just a bug in my mind. So despite all this I say about it, I I still think I liked it mostly because I do like sci-fi. And I think it was good sci-fi. I just felt like it was a bit long, um, a bit light on details. I thought it could have been 40 minutes shorter and one of the best Black Mirror episodes. (laughs) That's how I felt. I felt felt like it was about that scale of -hmm. a Black Mirror episode. Uh, No, it's, it's definitely small. It's definitely a lot smaller than it pitches itself to be. Yeah, so. and I think it worked best when it stayed small because I, the international stuff it definitely worked to raise the um, raise the stakes of like we're going to declare war on all these things. I thought that mm-hmm. worked, but it was best when it was about her. Yeah, it was. It was. I I do though. I do, however, like the message of of hope and the message of communication and all of that. Like, and I think you know maybe it's just the uh, you know. The, the past couple of weeks that we've had, it's it's the type of thing that uh, it, it felt nice and refreshing getting that. Um, yeah, but- it, it was a message about uh, it had a message of learning to communicate with people or with things you have nothing in common with. And that should yeah. resonate really well these days, because that's probably how a lot of the country feels. Yeah. No matter what side you fall on. It's compassion and humanity. And so that's I mean, between that and between the uh, the arc of Amy Adams and her daughter, um which really worked to me. I I really enjoyed this movie, even if it's flawed. Did Did you buy Renner in that film, Chris? Um, I bought it more than I thought I would as a theoretical physicist. Um, I, just, I just came away thinking the same thing I always think, which he's not. He's not my. F- J- Jeremy Renner is the Hawkeye of actors. <laughs> <laughs> to, to me he doesn't have the talent the superpowers that all the other actors have and if you get in a real big bind you don't want jeremy renner showing up he's not gonna See, save I, the day i think jeremy renner is very very effective and good at one specific sort of character which is sort of the um 
the kind of ratty faced guy who's still a little charismatic. He's not, he's not a great leading man. He's not a great, um, in this scenario, he's not a great, uh, like love interest sort of, he's not good at meet cute. I think I thought he did all right here, but here's, here's the thing. I feel like Jeremy Renner as a person, he is the person that Leonardo DiCaprio is often playing <laughs> like, like Leonardo DiCaprio in the departed is playing. Like if, if that character was a real life person, that would be Jeremy, Jeremy Renner. You know so, what I mean? So, so you're saying if they made a, the, the Jeremy Renner story right now, they would cast Leonardo DiCaprio in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Leonardo DiCaprio would play Jeremy Renner in the Jeremy Renner biopic. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm saying. Poor, poor Jeremy Renner. Spoilers are done. Spoilers are done. Turns out Rosebud was only a sled. Kylo Ren's dad is totally dead. Noah Cross was Mulray's baby daddy. And also her regular dad. Spoilers are done. We're finished. Spoilers are done. So, Chris, I know you always recommend a beer to go with the the films we review. So when I, I sit down to watch these 12 pack of eggs land on Earth, uh, <laughs> what, 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 what should I be cracking open to go with it? Uh, <laughs> Nothing, because I don't drink. But for other people. Right, exactly. Um, I don't think this comes in a 12 pack, but I do think it'll be a good, a, a good pairing to go with it. Um, what I've got this time is Lava Lake Wit by Crazy Brewing Company in Edwards, Colorado. Um, this is a wit beer, um, and it's, which is generally a style that I don't love. I mean, think what like, is that? What is a wit beer? I've never um, heard of that. It, it's a, it is a Belgian, very light, uh, very, um, I, I don't know. I just, I don't typically love this style. I, I find that a lot of them kind of taste like, uh, you know, when you go trick or treating and instead of candy, they give you like those wax lips. Yeah. I think that's I think that's what a lot of wit beers taste like. This is uh this is a little better than that. Like still it's not my favorite, but I do I do enjoy it. Um it has a, a bit of a sweet, almost like coconut flavor to it a little bit, um, which is really nice. Yeah. And um it's the type of beer that I when I have one, and and typically I find this more with darker beers, but when I have one, I'm good. It's a little like the sweetness goes a long way. Um and so I, I have one that I lay off and I might, I might continue drinking, you know, beer for the evening, but I'm not going to continue drinking it, but it's still enjoyable. I, and I feel like that's sort of the vibe that I get from, from arrival here. I enjoy it. I don't, it's not my favorite. I have, I certainly have, uh, things to nitpick about it, but, um, good enough. And, uh, so that's, <laughs> I, which sounds, which sounds more down than I really am. Um, for uh, as much as I know you liked this movie, you're like, ah, just get a beer. That's okay. <laughs> no, it's, it's not a beer that's okay, but it's not, a, it's a beer that's not flawless. I guess okay. that's, that's the thing. It's, it, I, I think you try this and you will, you will really enjoy it. Um, but you're not going to, you're not going to drink a 12 pack of it in the evening for sure. <laughs> It's going to take a little bit longer to crack that one. Yeah. So that's a Lava Lake Wit from Crazy Mountain Brewing Company. Check it out. All right. Arrival is currently playing at movie theaters nationwide. If you've seen it, tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 
for cinema. Stick around. We'll be back after the break with a recap of week 11 of the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League. And then the special features discussion, our favorite Criterion Collection films. Here I am down on my knees, praying like a fallen leaf, that'll find a place to land. Someday the wind will blow And you don't know which direction you'll go Drifting up and then you're drifting down Miss your hand and hit the ground So always give your baby a kiss goodbye and Take a loving look in her eye Cause this world don't always make good sense You wind up living in the past All right, Midnight Warriors, strap on a helmet or a tall, tall wig, because it's time for another Fantasy Movie League roundup. Going into week 11, I was feeling pretty good, mostly because I have finally secured my first win of the season in our War Starts at Midnight Fantasy League, but also because this week seemed really simple. Pick at least six screens of Hacksaw Ridge, and all you have to do is find the right partner. I say it was simple, because it was Veterans Day weekend, and the word of mouth on Hacksaw Ridge was enough to get even me out to see it. Oh, by the way, don't believe those rumors about the war scenes being on par with Saving Private Ryan. Because the truth is, they're better. I don't know, Jake. I'll believe it when I see it. But I don't think I'm going to see it till it's on like HBO. I know, because you're going to go see Billy Lynn's Halftime hey, Walk. Hey, 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 hey. This is, this is purely an educational endeavor, going to see that movie. Um, <sighs> leave that out of this. Oh, my God. Okay. I know, I know it's going to look terrible, but that is exactly why I'm seeing it, too. Have actually say that I saw the 120 frame per second movie, the one that was ever made. If you only see one war movie this summer, make it Billy Lynn's long. I can't even do it. I can't even do it. (laughs) All right. So so with the seven with the six uh, Hacksaw Ridge screens, there was really only a few choices for an anchor. You had to go with Almost Christmas, Arrival or Trolls. Now, the obvious choice was trolls, but the only pairing for that was a blank screen. So, you know, I avoided that like the plague because I was not going to be the guy who lost because he played a blank screen and took the $2 million penalty that comes with it. Well, you know, overall, 514 people were smart enough to leave a screen blank, and they were all rewarded with a perfect Cineplex. Yes, that's one trolls, six hacksaw ridges, and just, just a blank screen, just a $2 million penalty. As for the Midnight Warrior League, uh, the perennial contenders for the top spot shared a brain and both played one Almost Christmas and seven Hacksaw Ridges. You guessed it, it's Film School Dropout and School of Rock. Yes, the first and second place Cineplexes for our season tied this week. My advice is School of Rock. If you want to gain ground, you're going to have to go riskier. I'm thinking like eight moonlights this week. What about, uh, could you fill up with all uh, Billy Lynn's long halftime walks? If you want to get risky, I think that's how you get risky. Yeah, that's that's and, and you know what? It's going to make all seven dollars that you spend on it, Chris. That's what <laughs> no, it's going to that, make. That movie's got to be in 3D, Jake. That's going to be a whole like twelve dollars. I cannot believe you're actually going to see this. I have to. For OK, science. OK. 
But Chris, my question about this week is this. Do you think the whole blank screen winning thing frustrated Hunter during his first week of ever setting a full <laughs> Cineplex? Or do you think Hunter just has a really old copy of Biff's Fantasy Movie League Almanac and all he could make out in it was the blank screen? Didn't know what week to play it. Uh, if anyone was to have Biff's Fantasy Movie League Almanac, I'm pretty sure it would be Hunter. Um, I don't know. Like I, I, To me, this feels like the first time Hunter has stopped trolling us. <laughs> in in the league since he started uh because i i mean i guess i did i did do the math on his previous uh his previous endeavors and he did use all of his money but he just used it so poorly uh, yeah and that's one thing about this you don't play it like it's a real cineplex yeah uh, and try to diversify sometimes you just run an eight screener that has you know one not showing anything at all and six showing hacksaw ridge or, or maybe you're No Country for Old Movies and you just say, you know what? Fill it up with Hacksaw Ridge. <laughs> that, that was good enough for fourth place last week. Hey, what, what, what are y'all showing this week? We're showing Hacksaw Ridge every 15 minutes all day. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think uh, my advice on the article actually came in fourth that, this week. Uh, nice. Which is, it's bad when I didn't even follow my own advice. I, I have this bad habit where I, I, I lay out exactly what I'm going to do. I'm 100% honest about what I'm picking, and I put it in the article. You called you called a pretty quick audible, on, or a pretty late audible on this, right? Oh, I, I, I look. I think Friday, you, you yeah, said, oh, I'm changing it. Like five minutes before deadline, I looked at the overnights, uh, and I was like, oh, no, Arrival's going to do amazing. Yeah. And how did Arrival yeah. do, Jake? Yeah, fine. I yeah, went and saw right. it. I went and saw it. I talked about it a lot on this podcast earlier. Uh-huh. So it did, it did a lot of did a lot like the movie did fine. Okay. Well, so what do you think of, we've really only got one big movie coming out uh, this week. What do you think of fantastic beasts at $864 for one screen? You know, those always scare me. Um, it has to make a lot of money. You're putting all your eggs in one basket mm -hmm. and I, I'm going to go with the old tried and true. I'm going to go to my, my, my Harry Potter nerd buddies and say, how excited are you really to see this movie? What do you, and, okay, quick, quick guesstimate. What do you think this movie is going to make without having done any of your, uh, not quite scientific, uh, polling? My, my semi-scientific research. Yeah. Uh, my gut tells me like 88 million. Really? About 88 to 90. I think yeah. you're lowballing it. I, I feel like, I feel like the Potter nerds are going to come out in mass and they're going to be dressed up, and it's going to be a giant event. And I'm going to say it's going to make uh, 120. You think it's going to make 120? I think it's going to make 120. I do. Good I honestly Lord. really do. That's okay. Do you think this is as strong of a brand as like a Star Wars? I think it is for a different demographic. I really do. Maybe. I, I, what I'm going to do for comps, I'm going to go back and look at the later Harry Potter releases. But then you got to discount them because this is not a Harry Potter movie. I in I I get that I understand that and so maybe maybe you're right maybe I am overestimating but I I still think there is a core fan base that no matter what is excited that there's a new Harry Potter adjacent movie coming out. No, I think there's a whole fan base who's really excited to see Beauty and the Beast this spring. Oh no, Beauty and the Beast that trailer looks like trash. It doesn't like, matter, I'm going to have to see it. <laughs> I'm going to have to see it. it it's <laughs> not because I'm going to pick to see it. It's because my beautiful girlfriend said we are seeing it. And I said, OK, I took you to arrival. So let's go. <laughs> OK, OK, fair. Um, but no, I I think I've been looking at this week and I think I'm going to go pretty risky. I think I'm going to do one one Fantastic Beasts and then I'm going to fill up the rest with seven moonlights 
because Moonlight's expanding quite a bit this weekend. It's coming to Tulsa this weekend um, and expanding elsewhere. So, and, and it's also dropped. I mean, it was $30 last week. It was the worst buy last week because it was only on 170 some odd cineplexes. It's expanding and the price has gone to, I mean, it's, it went from 30 to 13. So more than, uh, more than sliced in half. Um, if let's, let's just say, um, it does pretty well, you know, it's, it's, it's not gangbusters, but it does well enough to be the, uh, best performing Cineplex. That's an additional $14 million. Yeah. I, I mean, I can't argue with you. It's, it's coming, it's coming to Baton Rouge this week. So it's definitely going wider. Yeah. I mean, so, it, it, and, it definitely and, could do a lot better. I'm going to be able to see it. So hasn't your, uh, hasn't your rubric been, if it's over 300, do it. Yeah. But it's, it's been out a couple weeks now. Yeah. But it's, but it's expanding and it's only been going up in, uh, profits each week as well. Yeah. I will probably end up with it in there somewhere. Uh, but if you want to know what I'm going to play and I'm always honest about it, you need to catch my weekly recaps and predictions each Wednesday on the War Starts at Midnight blog. And if you've got a hot take on the next perfect Cineplex, hit us up on Facebook or Twitter at WSAMPod. Every year as fall sets in, the leaves turn and the pumpkin pies start hitting the table. Everyone's mind turns to one thing. No, I don't mean Thanksgiving. And I certainly don't mean Black Friday. I mean the home of real discounts. Barnes & Noble's semi-annual Criterion Collection Sale. Yes, now through November 28th at Barnes & Noble, you can find all Criterion Collection DVDs and Blu-rays at 50% off retail price. This segment isn't a sponsored endorsement because, as always, we are brought to you by Hollywood Video. We're starts at midnight brought to you by Hollywood Video. We, we actually just really love this sale. We love it. Our significant others hate it. Uh, yeah, they, they certainly do. So now as you start flipping through the cornucopia of cinematic treasures, you may find yourself having trouble picking. Do you want to restore classic, a foreign masterpiece, or maybe a modern auteur's masterwork? Or maybe you're just trying to pick up that perfect gift for your loved one, and you know that the 2003 Warner Brothers DVD of Day for Night just isn't going to cut it. Or, better yet, are your loved ones nagging you for your Christmas list, and you just need to know what's the best of the best so you don't get stuck pretending to like Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice Ultimate Edition? Which is what you're going to get if you don't tell them. That's going to be the gift this year. Jake, you actually pronounced that incorrectly. It's Batman v. Superman. Dawn of Justice. Ultimate it's not edition. versus. It's just V. It's just V. Is is that like a middle initial? What does it stand for? Um, it stands for the court battle that they had. <laughs> I I want to cite 2016's Batman v Superman. Exactly. I, I'm for overturning that one. By the way. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> if you are looking for a Criterion Collection film, we at War Starts at Midnight are here to help. Chris and I will take turns listing our picks of the best of Criterion Collection. Sit back, browse to barnesandnoble.com, and start adding these cinematic classics to your cart. Chris, I understand we took different approaches to picking our lists. So, how did you go about narrowing the 800-plus classics into only the top five best flicks? Uh, Well, you see, um, I cheated. A lot. But there's a good reason for that. I I love Criterion releases. I have a lot of Criterion releases. I have... Um, at last count, 136 of these movies. 
Um, you own 136 Criterion Collection films? I do. And that's that's DVD and Blu-ray. So that's, I mean, I've been collecting these for well over a decade now. Um, so it's, you know, I, I amass them, um, you know, a couple at a time whenever a sale like this comes along. Um, and I, I actually have a letterbox list. I need to update it. Um, I, I think it's missing right now, maybe 20 or so. Um, I'll try to update it before this episode goes out. I'll put that in the show notes. Um, Chris, I own, I own five of these because I have Hulu. Well, I, I started and I will soon have Filmstruck. I started a, I started long before that B my library does not get uh criterion blu-rays like yours does and see like until film struck the only way to get a lot of these special features that come with them which is a major reason to buy the uh criterion discs is to get the discs so there's that um and so i i started by kind of narrowing down taking some films that uh i have recommended far too much on the show or just talk about far too much on the show, set them aside as the two obvious picks. These are films like the life and death of Colonel blimp, the pal Pressburger film, which this podcast is named after um, basically all Wes Anderson films. Um, but especially uh, the Royal Tenenbaums and bottle rocket. Those have sort of a very sentimental place for me. The Royal Tenenbaums being the very first criterion release I ever bought. And then also the Apu trilogy by Satajit Rai, um, I've recommended that several times. It only came out, I believe about this time last year. Um, and, uh, it's, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous release. Um, all three of those films, but I've talked about it a lot. So I set those aside because like I said, there's a ton of these, uh, a ton of these films, as you said, eight over 800 of them. So, um, I set those aside to kind of, uh, focus on some others that I, I think definitely deserve the love. And so my approach was sort of my favorite films. These are the films that, uh, other than those that come off the shelf the most for me that I rewatch, that I read the booklets, that I look over the special features, all of that more than any of the others that I own. So how did I understand you approach this a little differently? How did you approach your criteria? Yeah, I definitely went a different way. I too threw out the life and death of Colonel Blimp. But uh, for the most part, I tried to pick films that showed best what Criterion Collection does. I didn't pick any any collect, any uh, box sets or anything. But I, I tried to show ones that had good special features, okay. uh, a great restoration, a hard-to-find film that's been made available through them. I, I tried mm. to show what was great about Criterion Collection. So if you were just starting out um, and you wanted to know what really makes a DVD worth a $40 sticker price... Which no one pays the forty dollars sticker price. Let's let's be honest. Like no. with with the the biannual sale and with Criterion.com, you know, periodically throwing stuff up at fifty percent off. I I've never paid full price for a Criterion film. Uh, I did once, but it was because I wanted to give on the waterfront to my dad for his birthday. Okay, that's fair. Gifting, you know. and that and that's exactly gifting them. That's that's totally fair. Yeah, and on the waterfront didn't make this list, but man, is it a good movie. Yeah. All right, Chris, uh, do you do you want to start off? Okay, my number one is a cheat, uh, but I'm totally okay with that because as a as a Criterion release, this is one of my absolute most coveted uh, picks, and it is The Adventures of Anton Duenel by Francois Truffaut. Um, this is a series of films. It's uh, four features and a short film starring Jean-Pierre Léo. Um, unfortunately, only on a DVD box set. 
Um, this is like since day one of them announcing they were doing Blu-ray. This is the thing that I have been waiting for, looking for. Um, these films, it's the 400 blows, which is probably the one that, um, if you are familiar with these films at all, it's the one that you're probably most familiar with. Uh, that came out in 1959. And then there's a short film that came out a couple years later called, uh, Anton and Colette, um, came out in 1962, then stolen kisses, 68 bed and board, uh, 70. And then love on the run came out a bit later in 1979. The thing that I love about this series is, um, you actually get to see, so Jean-Pierre Leo, I believe he's about like 12 or 13 when, when the 400 blows was made and you get to see his character grow and evolve as he goes from being a boy into being, um, a young man and then an adult. Uh, this, uh, this Truffaut guy just ripping off that boyhood movie, huh? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Um, and, and that was, that was the thing that actually got me interested in it first. I had seen the 400 blows and then I learned that, oh, there's these other movies with this guy and, uh, it's, they're, they're really great. And, you know, as much as I love Wes Anderson, there's a lot of little quirky things that, um, either feel Andersonian or that he has actually borrowed from, um, in this series, particularly there's a moment in, uh, love on the run, which is a bit like, I would say of the four features is probably, um, the least prestigious, I guess I would say. Um, it's a, it's a almost sort of the clip movie of, of the series. Um, but still, still great fun. Like if you've invested in the, in the characters, but there's a moment in there that is, I think maybe word for word, uh, then borrowed by Wes Anderson in the Darjeeling limited, um, and it's, it's basically, uh, Leo's character has become a writer and people are reading his manuscript and they say, oh, well you just stole that from, you know, a real life. And he's like, no, no, no. They're all, they're all fictional characters. I, I, I Chris, I, I love Darjeeling limited and, and that's going to make an appearance pretty soon in this list. But I, I want to say that you don't know how to follow rules. We're like, pick five <laughs> movies. And you're like, my first pick is five movies. Yeah, well, I mean, one of them is a short film, and there it's it's a release. It is a it's a box set. I would give you more crap for this if I didn't think it's like the the one of the core criterion or things that I identify with criterion is is this fantastic box set. And if you're talking about cover art, each one of them has like sort of a it it is it made out to be like a closet or something. Well, so the the box itself is a suitcase, and then each film is like an article of clothing inside the suitcase. Uh, which is which is great, brilliant. I I hope they don't change that whenever they finally do go to uh, go to Blu-ray. Um, but yeah, it's and the other thing that I like about these is he approaches it sort of almost from a sitcom setup. In that uh, this character that Jean-Pierre Leo plays, um, he is Antoine Duanel. Um, Antoine Duanel. <laughs> there we go. Thank you. Um, he's constantly like changing jobs or changing like. Uh, even though it's linear, each film has its own little quirks. Like he's a private eye in one, in one film, he like, his job is just like, as far as I can tell, playing with like toy boats, um, which is some sort of scientific research. Um, it, you know, it has this light playfulness to it that I, that I really love in, uh, in Truffaut films in general. Well, Chris, your first pick is a Truffaut film starring, uh, Jean-Pierre Leo. Uh, mm-hmm. And I wanted to go just completely different, so I picked a Truffaut film starring Jean Pierre Leo, which is uh, <laughs> I picked Day for Night, okay, which uh, is from 1973. Great Truffaut, yeah, it it, it really is. It, it's a it's a great 
just film. And I wanted to talk about that one because it shows that Criterion is still putting out good releases. This is a film that I wanted on Blu-ray for a while. I don't think it was on. I don't think it was available. I think you had to get like a really old DVD, a really, really rough, bad DVD that I own, but it like it just didn't do the film justice in any way. Um, This yeah, this Blu-ray release is gorgeous. This is the type of thing when we're talking about the restoration and care. This is exactly what we're talking about. Each Criterion Collection film gets a spine number for their release. Mm -hmm. This is 769. So they are way deep into it, and they're still releasing fantastic films. Mm -hmm. Just fantastic films. This is a must-see. This one also, if you like Wes Anderson, you're going to like this. If you remember his, uh, I think it was an American Express commercial. Yes. Um, Very much... um, draws on this film it's it's the intro of the film plus the geisha from i believe stolen kisses in my (laughs) first pick yeah it's it is it is just great and if you like films if you like films about films uh this is one you have to catch and for its special features there's a really great um it's like a like a directing seminar type thing question and answer session with Truffaut, Mm -hmm. and he Mm -hmm. compares you know how he directs to how somebody like uh, well, how his contemporaries direct from when it was recorded in, I think, the 70s or maybe early 80s. And so he's talking about um, Kubrick and all these other guys and how they go about shooting stuff and how he does it and shooting in color versus black and white. So you can really get – and that that actually might be on some of the other uh, special features for other Truffaut films. But uh, it, it's just it, – it's the thing that rounds out a, a film that, that can – you can sit down and watch it. But if you want to know more, you can get all the surrounding – uh, yeah, information yeah. that you need to truly appreciate it that you might not get from a DVD whose special features is two deleted scenes and the trailer. Yeah, right. And that's I, I don't even know if the DVD has that. I um, the, the the original DVD, uh, which is like in to show how old it is in one of those like uh, cardboard clamshell uh, wow. cases um, is very bare bones. So that that's a great pick. Uh, my second pickup is Videodrome by David Cronenberg, okay. uh, 1983 release. Everything else that I've got here has been released on Blu-ray. Um, and this is a gorgeous Blu-ray. This is a, have you seen Videodrome, Jake? I have not. Okay. Since you enjoyed the thing, I think you definitely need to check this movie out. It's, uh, it's peak Cronenberg. It's peak body horror. Um, James Woods, uh, giving a, a wonderful, weird little performance. Um, and it's, it's the type of, uh, it's, it's the type of thing that you kind of, I, I expect from Criterion. It's, it's sort of the, the reason that I, I love their collection is it's the type of movie that it's more a cult film. And so, uh, generally something like this isn't going to get the attention and to, uh, you know, restore it and release it, um, in, you know, pristine, beautiful, uh, full HD. And I, I just appreciate the, uh, the fact they they've done that with, and it's, it's the type of film that I am constantly thinking about constantly going back to. Um, so that's, you know, with my criteria of it being, um, sort of the essential can't live without films, this definitely ends up on that list. Uh, so I, I also went with a, a horror film. This is the video drums. Horror is, or suspense. Yeah. I I mean yeah it it's generally characterized as body horror which I think is yeah it's 
Perfect. It's also absurd and weird, but yeah. perfect because I picked uh, Franju's 1962 film Eyes Without a Face. Have Have you seen this, Chris? No, I still haven't seen this. And this is I noticed this is yeah, on Filmstruck. I, I talk about it a lot. I noticed this is on Filmstruck with special features, but I don't know if it has that short film that you've you've mentioned. Oh, before that, that's that's why I included it here because it's another one of those things that Criterion does great. So this this the film itself is a horror film. It's French. Uh, it's subtitled. And it also is probably not body horror is the right way to to put it, but it's about a doctor. I don't want to give too much away because you haven't seen it, Chris, but from the cover, you can see it looks like, you know, a face has been removed. Uh, right. the, cover, the cover's excellent for this one, by the way. Um, but in, in the shorts, uh, it has a truly horrific short film that is just a documentary, but it's about how a slaughterhouse in France worked at the time. I think it's actually, it actually might be five to 10 years older than this film, but it's included anyway. And so it just rounds out what the director was doing and the sort of things that he did. And that that's what you want from a purchase. And if, if you were giving this as a gift to someone, a, uh, they better like horror films <laughs> or they're not going to enjoy this particular one but if they if they do and you're playing and and they're playing this film and enjoying it they're going to have way more content to go and explore so you're you're really on the content of of each of these yeah that's I, I, that's, that's kind of what i a lot of it is what i went on is what extras come with it because not only do okay. i like great covers and great transfers but you want more from a dvd and if you're going to be paying these the list price on these are 40 bucks right you you better be getting more than just the film. Yeah. No, that, None of them are light on features, but I just want to talk about those when we talk about a Criterion okay. release. It's more than just the film itself. Okay. This this actually brings me to my third uh, recommendation, which because I, we're approaching it from very different standpoints, but I, I love this. Like uh, this is another one that I I don't think this is a film that I don't think I would have been aware of if Criterion hadn't released it. And, um, it also, I, I appreciate it for introducing me to Jean-Pierre Melville, the, um, the French director who, um, has just, you know, a lot of life and spark in his films. He can do, uh, you know, he can do a straight sort of, uh, noir sort of thing. He can, he can subvert that with something like Les Samurai, where it's more cerebral noir. Mm -hmm. Um, in this case, it's a, it's the film Army of Shadows, which, uh, was initially released in 1969, I believe, but was not released in America until something like 2011, okay. maybe 2011, 2012, something like that. Um, it's about the French resistance during World War II, um, and it is a gorgeous, gorgeous film. Um, and I don't know, I don't know how much of that is Criterion Restoration, how much of that is um, just he, the way that he shot it at the time looked far superior to 60s, 70s films of the time. But I, I swear you look at a frame from it and you might think this, you know, came out last year. Hmm. Um, beautiful film um, and, and a really amazing tight little suspense drama um, that doesn't shy away from, doesn't shy away from its violence. It, it doesn't, um, you know, a, a lot of World War II movies that, you get American World War II movies. They uh, embellish the violence, even if they are kind of saying war is hell. This is not that. I mean, you um, you see some really horrific things and you endure them. And you um, really, each moment is just sort of 
not exactly knowing what's going to happen next. And I love, I love the way that he handles sound or lack of sound. You know, it's very, there's, there's a lot of very quiet moments that just sort of amp up the tension um, that are, that are wonderful. So that's, uh, that's my third pick. It's maybe visually one of my absolute favorite in the entire collection. Uh, Army of Shadows by Jean-Pierre Melville. Okay, so I, I wanted to go with a foreign film for my next pick. Uh, I picked one particular film because I, I just wanted to highlight it, but really the pick is all the Kurosawa films. That's <laughs> that's really all these Kurosawa films that they've brought over all look amazing. They are the best transfers. They they are just phenomenal. But I wanted to talk about the Hidden Fortress, which is nice. one that gets forgotten a lot, and its fame sort of comes from being uh, the inspiration for George Lucas's uh, Star Wars, not directly, but a good a good framework, a good wire framework. Yeah. So in this film, there's two peasants who uh, you kind of the story kind of follows them, but there's a princess from like a, a fallen rebel. Uh, like clan or something. Uh, I don't know what it would be in feudal Japan where this is said. Yeah, right. uh, and they're trying to smuggle her or some stuff a- across these. But the the point is, it's told from the lowest two characters. Is sort of mm-hmm. how this film's told. And Lucas uh, has cited that as being his inspiration for picking R two D two and C three PO. Right, to, but also uh, the princess and rescuing her, and yeah, you know, like there's there's more. It's more than just that. Like he plays it down, and then other people play it up. It's somewhere in the middle. But. And and I mean, the samurais are sword fighting, and they're using lightsabers and stuff. But right. uh, if you want to know more about it, certainly you can pick up this DVD and watch the interview from 2001 with George George Lucas about Kurosawa. Um, th- this this there's not as much like on the older films of of commentaries from the original directors, but Mm -hmm. this has a a historian and an author of a book. um, Apparently the warriors camera, the cinema of Kurosawa, which Mm -hmm. just made my Christmas list. So anybody, (laughs) uh, uh, but um, he's doing the commentary on this, but it also has a documentary on it about uh, Akira Kurosawa. It's wonderful to create, which I think is on a lot of them because I've seen most of that either through YouTube or, through the various criterion collections that I've watched mm-hmm. on his, but, but definitely find a good foreign film from them. Find something you've never watched before. And if you've never watched these Kurosawa films, go and watch them. It was like yeah. fundamental in my like learning to process film theory and criticism and, and just visual storytelling, I think. And I, I think this is a good, if, if Kurosawa just hearing a, you know, weird foreign Japanese name scares you. Uh, Hidden Fortress is probably a pretty good place to start because it's it's more of a light adventure film. Kurosawa shouldn't scare you, I don't think, because if you like John Ford Westerns, you're probably going to like these Kurosawa films. It's not dialogue heavy. There's not a lot to read, but there's action and comedy at some points and uh, really visual follow the action type stuff. It's really good. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I just think, you know, if, if you were to pick up Ron as your first Kurosawa film, that. or if you were even, even maybe seven samurai, seven samurai is a, with its length. It's a, it's, it's a movie that could be daunting to, and uh, to it, it would be hard to pick up Ikaru at first as well, even though it's oh, a man. great movie, but because it's it's if that's your first introduction to it, it's a little bit more reading and a little more since it's modern, it relies mm-hmm. on some cultural things. Uh, whereas if you pick up a Toshiro Mifune, uh, yeah, something set a long time ago, uh, feudal Japan, 
That is where that is where you're going to have your easiest introduction. Throne of Blood, Rashomon, Seven Samurai, um, Redbeard. Even there, that that's what you should go with. Yeah, I I would say I would say Redbeard is like the next the next level. It's the 102 class. It is, um, but it's really good. No, it's great. Um, okay, so my my next pick that I've got my number four. Um, since I couldn't include Pal Pressburger's. The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. That would have made I, both of our lists, just in case everybody's wondering. Um, I decided that I'm going to go with a different Pal Pressburger movie. And since I have talked about Peeping Tom on the show before, uh, which I think is actually their, maybe their best underrated gym. Well, it's, it, I shouldn't say there. It's only Michael Powell, but a great little underrated gym that was really misunderstood at the time. Uh, I'm going to go with The Red Shoes, which is maybe their most well-known film. Um, from 1948, uh, this is a film that has been widely influential, um, to a a lot of filmmakers, most notably recently, um, there are definite signs of this film in Darren Aronofsky's, uh, Black Swan. Um, it's a, like Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, it stars or co-stars, uh, Anton Walbrook. He is a, um, ballet director, a sort of somewhat egomaniacal ballet director. Um, and it's, it's sort of a, I believe this is, I believe Scorsese is on the record as saying this is his favorite film of all time. He actually owns, uh, the pair or a pair of the titular red shoes. Um, and it's, it's just a beautiful melding of everything that I think Pal and Pressburger do well in cinema, um, with, economy of storytelling with visual storytelling with, I mean, there's this beautiful moment um, where they have a big long, I mean, I think it's like 12, 12 minutes, 15 minutes, a big long chunk of the ballet. And it becomes very, um, very surreal, very um, magical realism. And it's beautiful and gorgeous. And you just, you're just sucked into um, into the ballet. And then you go back to sort of the, the regular story. And, you know, it's a, it's a story of power. It's a story of art. Um, it's a story of, uh, sort of what the drive to need to make art, uh, can do to a person. Um, so, so the clip I have in my head of the red shoes is uh-huh. from that magical part. I'm sure. Is it, is it running down the stairs? Yeah. 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 That's, um, I mean, that, that's probably the most, famous i would i would say that or jumping into the shoes um but there's there's just a bunch of very simple but very uh smart sort of special effects they pull off in this as well um with you know lighting cues to make uh little quick jump cuts or things like that to to make something feel uh feel surreal feel magical um, this is like, this is pure joy on, on screen, I think. And once again, like other Pal and Pressburger films, 1948, but in complete full Technicolor and utterly gorgeous, beautiful. Chris, why, why is, why is a matter of life and death not on Criterion? Uh, a matter of life and death, I believe is on an older Criterion release. I thought, is it? I believe, I believe it was released on DVD. I thought. 
that that would have made my list as my alternate uh, pal and press burger. I, I couldn't I couldn't find it on their website, but maybe okay. I just missed it. I thought it I thought it was one like I don't think it's received the update with like the wraparound spine. If that makes mm-hmm. sense to to you, you know, the, is it the like updated, an essential art house or something? Maybe I mean, and and to be fair, I've only seen it on I caught it on Turner Classic Movies, so um, maybe I'm misremembering. But that's that's a good question. I mean, and there's there's a few pal press burgers that were released by Criterion, you know, years ago and just haven't received an update. Uh, the 49th parallel being another one. Uh, but that's, that's actually, that's a good question. Uh, matter of life and death, a, another essential pal press burger. Uh, so, so you said the red shoes, which I have not seen, but I'm still going to make an outlandish statement and say <laughs> you, you didn't even pick the best, uh, Criterion collection with red in the title. Uh, three colors, red, uh, no red river. Red Beard? <laughs> All right, Red Beard might win that one. No, I, I, pick, I picked Red River, uh, How, Howard Hawks' 1948 Western with uh, Montgomery Cliff and John Wayne. Uh, it, it is a must-see of, of Westerns. It, mm-hmm. Some people say it's the best Western. I sort of disagree because we live in a universe where um, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance was made, but and also also Rio Bravo. So. That's an audacious claim just from the, the pure fact that who, who was it that threatened to sue Howard Hawks over the conclusion of this film? Was it Orson Welles? Was <laughs> I it don't remember. Howard Hughes? Somebody, it may have been Howard Hughes. Um, some, somebody essentially said like uh, when the film was being made, they were like, Oh, this is basically a, a Western that I've already made. I'm going to sue you. And so they ended up changing the ending. Really? Yeah. It's, it's, it is a great film. I, it took me way like an embarrassingly long time to get around to watching this one. And and when I saw it, I, I was embarrassed that I hadn't seen it up until that point. <laughs> it it is it is really good and it's one of those great John Wayne roles where he he plays a little meaner than he usually plays. Mm-hmm. Uh but but to talk about this actual release of it, not only does it look phenomenal, but there's a second disc that contains um extra like not extra scenes, but a, an earlier cut of the film that didn't go to cinemas. Not the that, that's what I'm talking about. I oh, think. is is that it? I yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that version is the the version that they that Hawks was going to get sued over. Yeah, but I also, from what I recall reading, it's not the one that Hawks stood by long term. He said the 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 release that we're all familiar with is is the right one, but that other one is provided huh. just for uh you know for you to explore if you would like. And, okay. and and that is a uh, that's a cool that's a cool thing that a normal release wouldn't give you or maybe would try to just you know reorder the scenes through you know DVD magic. They, yeah, they would say here or they would say here's deleted scenes. This belongs between X and Y. Yeah, no, they they present it as its own film that you can put that disc in and just watch that one. Yeah, that's uh, that's actually a pretty good segue for my final pick. Um, and I started with a cheat. I'm going to end with a cheat as well. Um, my fifth and final selection is five films by John Cassavetes. So once again, five movies, pick five um, movies. Chris picks 13 and a short. <laughs> I just count it. It's 13 films in a short. <laughs> um, so this is in this box set, you get shadows from 1959, which was a movie that I believe took him like two and a half years to make. He kind of, he shot it with like a group of, uh, it was like a improv class. And so they sort of made up the story as it, as it went, um, faces from 1968. So about a decade later, this has a great performance by a young Seymour Cassell, a lot of, a lot of amazing, weird sort of, uh, meta cinema going on here as well, 
which is not the type of thing that you typically think of when you think of Cassavetes. Generally, I believe most people think of like just his really intense, um, very, you know, the verisimilitude, the fly on the wall moments. Um, but the faces is very playful. Uh, then you've got a woman under the influence from 1974, which is probably the film he's most known for. I think, um, very, very famous or infamous for the Jenna Rollins performance of playing this, uh, playing this mother with mental illness and sort of just the, uh, warts and all portrayal of, of that and that family's relationship. And then the killing of a Chinese bookie, which is why I say the, your uh, recommendation of red river was good because killing of a Chinese bookie has two cuts. There is a, the 1976 cut um, and then the 1978 cut, the, the difference between them being um, 1976 cut. Uh, he was, Cassavetes was kind of rushed to put it out. And um, so he threw everything together and it was essentially, I think my, my understanding is it was essentially sort of a work print, which so is, is to say, uh, unlike maybe like Ridley Scott, who, whenever you see a director's cut, it gets bigger from 76 to 78. The film actually gets smaller and tighter. Was that like a studio wanting him to cut it down? No, this, this was him. Like he was not happy when he had to release the film, but he like, he had to release it. And so he released it in kind of a broader, hairier way. And then, and then trimmed it up, released the 78 version. And there's, there's a lot of debate as to what's better. I believe, um, he said that 78 was the definitive version. Hmm. There's a lot of defenders of 76 though. And hmm. it's, I, I mean, I, I think my general, like if I'm going to watch one, I generally will watch 78 because it's tighter, but there's a lot of things that you miss that aren't, are by no means essential to the narrative, but they're essential to the, uh, aesthetic and the atmosphere, which is what for me, this movie is all about. This is my favorite Cassavetes film, um, that you miss when watching the trimmed down 78 version. So 76 is definitely worth seeing if I, I would say if, if you get into this watch 78 and you're like, Oh man, I really wish I had more of the, um, the performances. And, and this is, uh, Ben Gazzara. He plays a owner of a nightclub, a gentleman's club, but it's not, you know, it's, it's not what you think of as just, you know, like strippers on a pole. It's he's putting on actual shows. It's more burlesque or that sort of thing. And so you get a lot more of that in the original cut, which I really enjoy. And then, uh, finally you've got opening night, uh, from 1977, which is, um, a film with a pretty interesting history. It's, you know, about, um, about a stage play production and they actually, I believe over the course of like two or three evenings put on the play and had an actual audiences come and fill and just filmed the real life play within the movie, um, happening and, and filmed audience reactions and stuff, um, which is so Cassavetes. Yeah, don't don't fuck with my play. <laughs> to to quote Max Fisher, Fisher. Yeah, and the other thing is this has I f- I forget the title of it, but it also has uh within the box set a sort of documentary about um John Cassavetes where they interview a ton of people that he worked with, you know, his wife Jenna Rollins, Ben Gazzara, I believe Peter Fox in it. And you just it's wonderful to hear from the people who worked with him and talk about just how sort of uh, energizing it is. It was to, to work with him, how, um, you know, the spontaneity that he, um, uh, that he always brought to set was the thing that made 
these actors want to go back and work with him again and again, as most of them did. Hmm. Also, you know, they didn't have to read a script and reading scripts are hard. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, for, for my last pick, I wanted to wanted to pick one of my absolute favorite movies. It's a uh, criterion spine number 40, which means it was an early release. That's 1998's Armageddon. <laughs> That's not this actually movie, Jake. This is a movie that you've actually recommended this version of Armageddon on the show before. I, I'm not, I'm not actually, that's not actually my pick because I don't think you can go out and buy it on Blu-ray. Uh, no, it's on Blu-ray. It is on DVD, though. Yeah, uh, but uh, I, I, I just wanted to mention it because it. I always sort of liked Armageddon, but then uh, when I read the essay that's included explaining why it was chosen to be a Criterion Collection film, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it made me a staunch defender of this film. <laughs> All right. But what, what's your real pick, Jake? My my real pick is one of my my other actual favorite films, uh, which is Hal Ashby's 1971 forgotten masterpiece, in my opinion, Harold and Maude. Oh, I think it, I I wouldn't say forgotten. I I think it's much beloved. Um, amazing soundtrack. I mean, it's it's the type of and once again, you got that Wes Anderson connection where you know he he uh, put Bud Court in the Life Aquatic. I'm almost positive because of uh, because of Harold and Maude. Which, I- I do think I could have just saved a lot of time, not made through these picks and just picked Darjeeling Limited, but I wanted to try to steer around Wes Anderson in this, and mm-hmm. instead I just picked all his inspirations. <laughs> um, no, this this film's great. I, forgotten might not be the right thing, but it's not like widely loved among the general like i don't think it makes a lot yeah. of best of lists or anything like that but i think it's i think it's fantastic i i think it's i think it is widely loved around you know with cinephiles though that um, that's probably I, true and, and probably ashby's most well known i think i mean maybe maybe being there maybe is, shampoo <laughs> maybe shampoo <laughs> um i no this film is great it's it, it's something i also wanted to pick because I think in, in in this trying time where a lot of people may be looking, uh, giving up hope and all that stuff, they can probably relate to Harold and go through his journey of uh, finding how to live and appreciate life again. And and also you've got all those Cat Stevens tunes. Oh, you got such good Cat Stevens, Stevens songs. Uh, I'm excited. I just bought this uh, DVD or I just bought this Blu-ray last night. Um, and I'm looking at some of the special features. They actually have a new interview with songwriter Yusef, uh, Yusef Islam slash Cat Stevens. Yeah. Um, and also they have a commentary by a Hal Ashby biographer. So not, not Hal hmm. Ashby, but, right. uh, I'm, I'm eager to learn a lot of the things that go with one of my favorite films. I'm surprised you didn't own this one before. Uh, this is a good release. This is a really good release. Uh, I'm I'm excited. I'm hoping somebody will go ahead and release that soundtrack. Maybe Mondo could get the rights. It uh, has been it has been released only once. I I think it may have been there's a there's a label called like Two Guys with Beards or something. Mm-hmm. Um it was released maybe 3 or 4 years ago, but it was like 40 50 bucks. Yeah, I I should have I should have did that. But I that this is the exact type of thing to to talk about another uh, purveyor of really good content uh, that Mondo would do on vinyl. Yeah, uh, I no, I I could hundred percent see that. If you want to yeah. sing out, sing out. If you want to grow an awesome beard, grow an awesome beard. I don't remember those lyrics, but I I agree with I I agree with the sentiment. <laughs> uh, did you have any honorable mentions? 
Yeah, I I had a few because you know continuing the cheating. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The the first one actually coincides with your uh, I guess honorable honorable mention, and that's Michael Bay's The Rock from 1996. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, does not have a Blu-ray release. Only only available on DVD as well. But uh, it it should. It really should. It it should also show up on the uh, Criterion Channel. That would be that'd be wonderful. Um, then I've got the Phantom Carriage, uh, Victor Stroheim's uh, 1921. Uh, silent horror film, um, beautiful, a lot of just inventive, uh, you know, this is at the point where cinema is still kind of getting its sea legs, figuring out what it, what it can do. And so a lot of inventive special effects here, uh, ministry of fear, a Fritz Lang movie that I feel most people haven't seen. It kind of fits into, uh, that whole, uh, patriotic propaganda that like Hitchcock was doing at the time. Um, during, during the war effort, a man escaped, had to get Brisson here somewhere. This is my favorite Brisson. Um, really wonderful. And then last year at Marion Bad by Elaine Renee, a 1961 French new wave film that is beautiful and mind bending and, um, actually could have been a, a good recommendation, uh, really rad recommendation to coincide with arrival. In some ways, uh, I'm surprised you didn't pick uh, the earrings of Madame de. Uh, yeah, actually, I I just I felt like I was throwing too many things on. I was between both mm-hmm. that and Lola Montez. I felt like I've talked enough about Il Surpasso and Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion mm-hmm. that I didn't need to include them again here. Uh, but as always, go and watch those. I know you recently bought Il Surpasso, so I'm really excited to see what you think about that. Yeah, uh, on, I have not watched it yet, but I, I plan to soon. On my honorable mentions, I also had the uh, complete Jacques Tati, uh, mm, nice. which you should go and watch because I've seen everything but Playtime somehow. The one that everyone's seen, I haven't seen that one, but the rest <laughs> are really good. And um, I included Darjeeling Limited. It was my first Criterion Collection film. It is my favorite Wes Anderson film. We can debate this on, on air at some point, Chris, but I, oh, I'm I, in- I, I, can, I can absolutely debate you on that. I know, and I'm not. I'm not saying it is the best. I'm saying it is my favorite. And yeah, it, no, I I appreciate that. Yeah. I really do. Um. So, uh, the last thing I want to ask you, real quick, Chris, if you could pick one film that's not on Criterion and put it on Criterion, what would it be? Actually, I I have had a stock answer for years, and it's I've come off it a little bit because it, it was a movie that was only available on DVD in a uh like matted letterbox format. So on mm-hmm. a widescreen TV, it was a giant block around everything mm. black block around everything it has since gotten a blu-ray release so um i'm kind of okay with it but given that blood simple just came out i would love love to see raising arizona get the criterion treatment I that think is really I think funny because my pick was oh brother where art thou the coen brothers belong on criterion oh they, it's such a natural fit they, it's it is it, if wes anderson can be on there and he has, you know, a, they have a similar cult following, mm-hmm. um, and their films are both beautiful. They, it, it belongs there. It's that they're an auteur who belongs on a better DVD or Blu-ray release than they currently get. Yeah, and I mean, when I when I think American art house cinema, I think those two uh, above above all else. Even I mean, honestly, even above uh, like P.T. Anderson, who I love, but. Um, I, I I don't know what it is. He he definitely belongs in that conversation, um, and I I would love to see something like Heart Eight released um, through through Criterion. But 
yeah, like Coen Brothers makes so much sense. Uh, ho- hopefully that comes through. Uh, if, if people buy Blood Simple, maybe uh, maybe they can make it happen. <laughs> all right. Well, those are our picks for our favorite Criterion Collection films of all time. We'd love to hear what what we missed, what films you love, what films we should check out that we, we haven't discovered on the Criterion Collection yet. Uh, email us at hello at warstartsmidnight.com with those wrecks. And stick around for our really rad recommendations coming up next. All right, Jake, it's really rad recommendation time once again. What do you have to recommend? Is it spacey, sci-fi, or is it, you know, a parent-child tragedy? Uh, it is spacey. It is sci-fi. And and like the film we watched, it, it has, it has, uh, it slows down a little bit, but I still think it's really good. And I think it's mostly forgotten or was overlooked at the time. And that is 1997's Gattaca by Andrew Nichol. Have, have you seen this, Chris? Uh, I, I have. Gattaca is really good. Although I didn't realize it was on Criterion Collection, Jake. <laughs> it should be. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if it should be. But it, for a sci-fi film from the 90s, I think it's really effective. I think its universe is built really well, and when watching it, it feels like um, a short story that, mm-hmm. you know, like a really good short story. That's uh, interesting because Arrival actually was based on a short story. Really? Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. I thought I thought sort of the same thing that it felt like that. But the, the thing is, Gattaca not based on a short story, original script by Andrew Nichol. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it, but it, it features good performances from uh, Ethan Hawke and Jude Law, who um, are uh supposedly look enough alike that they can pass for each other in this plot <laughs> yeah which is kind of funny but uh but it works in the film it's it's really good i watched it again recently uh the end is a little slower than i remembered but very good very much worth going back and revisiting if you've seen it before uh or if you haven't and you just are a fan of good sci-fi films and that's why you tuned into this episode go watch Gattaca and 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 make sure you tell us what what you think so and it's available to rent on Amazon Google Play or from your local public library and this film for sure was available at a Hollywood video midnight (laughs) brought to you by Hollywood video for sure on VHS at least yeah no this this one would have been uh remember when you walk in and there were like 30 copies of the same movie because everybody wanted it on the first night it it, it was right at that time (laughs) Okay. Um, my, my selection, it's also sci-fi. Um, it's also criterion and it's, uh, currently available on Filmstruck. Uh, used to be on, on Hulu, but, uh, RIP Hulu criterion. It's no longer there. It is, uh, Andre Tarkovsky's 1972 film Solaris. And I got some serious Solaris vibes from, uh, arrival and, uh, the, I mean, that's, I think that's one of the other things that I enjoyed about this is sort of playing in, playing in the same world, 
um, which uh, Solaris, it's, it's a pretty weighty, heavy film to, uh, to endure. I mean, I think it's close to three hours, uh, but it, it's the type of movie that while, you know, this is a few years after you've even had something like 2001, which is, you know, a, a technical Marvel in, um, all the, all the ways that Kubrick is presenting space and everything. This is sort of, uh, in the same, you know, it's, it's a headier sci-fi film, but where, where Kubrick presented a world that's kind of clean and maybe even to a fault and austere, the world in Solaris is very dirty, very rundown. Um, it's, I mean, the basic story is about this, uh, this spaceman who, um, ends up on, on the space station. That's almost has no inhabitants almost, um, you know, it's, it's down to a few crew members and the last, the last crew member sort of lost his mind in some way. And he's, he's there to sort of investigate, figure out what, what was going on and come to find out there is this weird communication thing going on with, uh, people on the, the space station and this, uh, sun or the sea of this sun that they are, sort of orbiting. Um, it's yeah, it, it's beautiful. And, and Soderbergh, um, remade this, I believe in the nineties with like, uh, George Clooney and Sandra Bullock. Um, so definitely in the nineties <laughs> and, uh, the, the Soderbergh version, which I've only ever caught like TNT or whatever, you know, the, the cable version. it's, it's fine. It's definitely a more American version of this story. It's not quite as, not quite as heady, um, but yeah, I mean, check, check Solaris out. If you get, if you get that two week, uh, uh, Filmstruck subscription, this is definitely one to, uh, to dive into. And I think if you can get through it, you will be hooked on Tarkovsky for life. I mean, his, his stuff is difficult, but so rewarding. I don't, I don't think Clooney and Bullock, uh, nail you down to the nineties. I think they could have st- starred in a film in any of the last three decades, a major Hollywood film. I, I, but I think the fact that they are together as the to like they that is that is the selling point is oh you want to make a you want to make a 70s remake a 70s russian sci-fi movie yeah i don't know but it's starring george Clooney, sandra bullock as uh husband and wife um, so, so i, I, I see, see what you're saying it, it's you. like how in 25 years when they're like remember that movie passengers it had chris pratt and and jennifer lawrence and they're like exactly. oh that's from the 2010s yeah exactly it's it's that it's yeah. it's the the pitch is the thing that got the movie made. Yeah, Be- because I know I know people who watched that trailer and were like, "Oh, I got to see it because I love those two. Mm-hmm. Uh, one one of those persons is sitting in front of my microphone right now. <laughs> it, it, it's 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 me. I'm I'm bald hook line and sinker on that. I know that I've seen that movie before. I think that's what you had said. I've seen I've seen that one before. Yeah. Uh, I I know what's gonna happen. The trailer tells me way too much, and I'm st- I'm still gonna go see that thing. Way too much. I I know I'm gonna. All right. Well, that's a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Find us online at warstartsatmidnight.com for show notes, fantasy movie league recaps, and more. Or say hello on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WSAMPod. If you enjoy the show, rate and subscribe to it in iTunes or wherever you get the podcast. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior Clan, and it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits, go ahead and tell us everything we got wrong at hello at warstartsmidnight.com. Or if you're fluent in alien circle languages, call and tell us how next week's show is and see if we play it. Just ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. The War Starts at Midnight theme song was produced by Justin Streck. 
The Spoiler Alert theme song is by The Taylor Machine. Check them out at facebook.com slash The Taylor Machine. And shout out to Smokey in the Mirror for the featured music on this week's show. Find tunes and tour dates at SmokeyInTheMirror.com. Join us another fortnight when we'll be discussing Barry Jenkins' Oscar hopeful, Moonlight. Thanks for listening, folks. Now that's a proper introduction. Speaking of flaws, the the thing I thought was most unbelievable, Chris, the most unbelievable part of this whole movie is that when a student asked Professor Professor Louise to turn the television to the news, she did it in like three seconds. And if you've been in any class, you know, being in front of it makes every professor incapable of working a remote control. Uh, I, as someone who has been in that exact position before many times, can attest to the fact that that is a thousand percent true actually i feel like if we were going to make a little joke short about this it would be that same exact intro and then it would be like no you have to hit input no the the other input that's the uh-huh. input on the dvd you got to hit the input on the t uh, the cable's not hooked up can you can you get the guy down here to like it wouldn't have went well